Some people might say I'm kind of a book person. I do enjoy reading, but I'm not particularly a fast reader or a very accomplished reader. I don't finish books nearly as often as I start books. And uh, for example, in my spare time, I've been reading a big, thick biography of Ulysses S. Grant that's about a thousand pages, which don't be impressed by that because I'm not even halfway through it, and I started it in January of 2021. So if I were to somehow finish it by the end of the year, and I honestly don't have a whole lot of hope for that, if I were to finish it, I would have spent over two years reading this book, but it has been good. I've just not have been consistent at reading it. You know, one of the things that's most interesting is Ulysses S. Grant was a former president, an American Civil War hero, and a general, and a very accomplished general at that. He did extraordinary things, but what's been so interesting is how ordinary of a person he was. Normally we read biographies and we hear about these people who are larger than life. Not only did they accomplish great things, by all appearances they were great people, or at least very interesting people. But this was not Ulysses S. Grant. You know, he wasn't ugly, but he wasn't particularly attractive. He was only five foot eight. He was a modest man who spoke plainly and kept his emotions in check, except during his occasional bouts with alcohol. He didn't try to be charismatic, and he didn't dress up to impress people. He really was just this plain, ordinary man, but it's very possible without this ordinary man from Ohio, the Union Army would have never won. The American South had the leadership advantage. All of the great tacticians and generals of the time were Southerners. So when the war began and the South uh, put its military together, they had a great advantage. But you know what? Great Grant faced many of them, and he won time and again. Like Grant, we may be ordinary people. But if you are a Christian this morning, the Lord has drafted you into his service. There is a war in the church against the true gospel of Jesus Christ and false teachings, which attempt to distort or replace that true gospel with a false one. And battles over this gospel territory sometimes arise in local churches like ours. And if you are a Christian, you are called to serve the Lord in the battle against false teaching. From the text we read this morning, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, we learn that we can fight false teaching in the church because Jesus gives us the strength to be faithful servants instead of unfaithful sinners. We can fight false teaching in the church because Jesus gives us the strength to be faithful servants instead of unfaithful sinners. Now, Paul, in verses 12 through 17, tells his story. And he doesn't go into great detail, like he does in some other places in his letters or in the book of Acts. Instead, he only mentions briefly his past life as a sinner. And he only briefly mentions his new life in Christ. Instead, he focuses on the mercy and grace shown to him by Christ Jesus, who came to save sinners. And if you are a Christian this morning, you have a story like this. And if you want to join our church, we're going to ask you about it. 
And even if you don't want to join our church, I might ask you about it. Some of you have experienced that. We're not looking for some dramatic story of some light shining down from heaven. I always uh, would apply to church positions, and I would hear them. They would give you a sheet to fill out with a bunch of questions, and one of them would be, tell us your conversion story, your call to ministry. And I always thought, should I just make something up? Because I'm not sure they really want what I have to offer in that department. But also, they were Baptist churches, so I'm not convinced a very charismatic story would have appealed to them anyway. No, we're not looking for some dramatic story, or even for you to share one particular moment when you knew that you were saved. Instead, we're looking for you to just tell us your story of how you became a follower of Jesus, how you repented of your sin and believed in him, his death, and his resurrection. And and it's helpful for us, even if we aren't just joining a church, it's helpful for us to know our story well and to be able to share it in just 60 or 90 seconds with someone else so that we can bridge the gap between our friends, our family, and our neighbors and the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they may hear of him and the salvation he offers. If you're not a Christian this morning, you don't have a story like this. But we want you to know that no matter what sin may be ruling in your heart, no matter what or how uninterested you are in God, you can have a story like this too. So I just want to encourage you to listen closely this morning. Be ready for God to lead you to him You may be an unfaithful sinner this morning and not even know it, kind of like Paul. But the good news is that God shows mercy to sinners. He paid the penalty for the sins of sinners like us. God sent his son so that to die for us and to be raised from the dead so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So when Paul begins his story, in verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. He begins with thanksgiving for what he received. He received strength from Jesus. Now in the Old Testament, strength was often associated with salvation or with help from God. And we see that in Psalm 28. David says in verses 7 and 8, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. So when we look to this passage and we see Paul giving thanks to God, who has given him strength in the past when he became a Christian, We also realize it's also in the present as he continues to follow Christ on a daily basis. It is both strength for salvation and strength for service and daily following God. And the reality is for us, our strength for faithful service comes from Jesus too. God gives us strength, not just for the salvation we are given in the past, but he gives us strength to face life's battles. He gives us strength to pick up our Bibles and read them. He gives us strength to pray in times of trouble. He gives us strength even to fight false teaching in our church. Paul was appointed to this service because he had been found faithful in verse 12. That's what it says. But we shouldn't overlook that Paul said 
he was unfaithful before he followed Jesus. Paul says that before he was a Christian, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. He had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The root word for faithful in verse 12 and the word unbelief in verse 13 are the same. So he was found faithful to serve, although he was once unfaithful. He was found trustworthy, even though he was once untrustworthy. He was once in unbelief, but he was now judged as a believer. Paul acted in the past on his unbelief as a blasphemer. He said the wrong things about God. As a persecutor, he acted against God and his church, and as an insolent opponent, meaning that to his, in his very self he was rebelling against God. Paul had sinned against God by what he said, what he did, and who he was. But his past sin didn't disqualify him from service. He was a blasphemer, but was bought with the blood of Jesus. He was a persecutor, but proclaimed the gospel of God's glory. He was an insolent opponent, but he became an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's sins displayed God's power to take the most unlikely sinner and save him and use him for his glory. Our sins, our past sins, don't disqualify us from service to God today. Satan glories when he convinces people that their past sins against God disqualify them from future service to God. He rejoices every time someone chooses not to be used by God because of guilt or shame or embarrassment. Brothers and sisters, we should not let him win this battle. But instead, we should become, like Paul, faithful servants who can boast in Jesus because he doesn't keep us in sin and unbelief. Paul said he received mercy and grace and the grace of our Lord, which overflowed for him with faith and love. His sins may not have disqualified him from service, but they did qualify him for mercy. In verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not the righteous, sinners. Isn't that good news? It is for me because I'm a sinner. And, and you know what? It actually is good news for you too because you are also a sinner. Romans 3.23 says, or it tells us that everyone has sinned. So that means everyone needs Jesus to save them. Our sins qualify us for God's mercy. Without our sin, there would be no need for God to show us mercy. And in proclaiming this beautiful biblical truth, Paul doesn't just say that he is a sinner too. He says that he is the foremost sinner, the first sinner, the worst sinner, the chief of sinners, the greatest sinners, public enemy number one of sinners. You know, maybe Paul, inspired by God, sat down 
and thought through the history of our world and the history of every human being that has ever existed and every will exist, and he decided to calculate on a scale of 1 to 10 the value of everyone's sin. And then he wrote out a chart of how many times we had committed certain sins so that through arithmetic he could come to the conclusion that he was the foremost sinner. But I don't think Paul did that. I think Paul actually avoided that. Because instead of taking his sinful heart and comparing it to other fallen sinful human beings, instead of playing that game, the comparison game, he only compared his sinful heart to the perfect, obedient heart of Jesus Christ, which obeyed the law of God, which was good. He, he didn't sit there and go, you know what? I'm a little bit better than Timothy. A little older, wiser, know a little bit more. Avoid sin a little better. I'm, I'm better than Titus. I'm better than those other apostles. Peter, you know him, he's got all those problems. No, he didn't do that. He avoided the comparison game. He wasn't there to compare his heart with others. He only compared it to Christ. And brothers and sisters, it is so, so easy to fall into the temptation and the act of that comparison game. And I don't say this as someone who a year ago, or or five years ago, or ten years ago struggled with this. I say this as someone who was reading this text and writing a sermon this last week and still found myself thinking things like, you know what, I'm a sinner, but. I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as him or her. But the problem with this comparison game is, it's a losing one. And it's one you will lose. The only righteousness that this game produces is self-righteousness, a form of pride and arrogance. So that, in fact, in comparing my sins to someone else, I am increasing my own sin. If we could actually become righteousness on our own, we wouldn't need Christ. But because we are sinners, Christ came into this world to save us. And if we satisfy ourselves with our self-righteousness, then we may harden our hearts to the ability to repent and humble ourselves to accept the saving grace of our Lord. We need not a righteousness that we can produce by comparing ourselves to others, saying, you know what, I lust a little less than that guy, or I I steal a little less than that person, or I cheat a little less than them, or I lie a little less than them. Instead of playing that game, we need the righteousness of Christ, which we could not earn, which we could not possess on our own, which we could not merit in any way. We need a righteousness that comes from Christ, that is foreign to us, to enter our lives and redeem us. And if we as church members could focus less on comparing ourselves to others, comparing our sin to others, then perhaps if we only compared our own heart to Christ, we could say as Paul, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Maybe then we could realize the grace that Paul understood, the mercy that he felt, because he wasn't in the game to make himself better than others, but he accepted That compared to Christ, he failed in every way and needed Christ in every way. Therefore, Paul says, 
that he thanks God who has given him strength in the past when he became a Christian and in the present as he continues to follow Christ on a daily basis. Now, at the end of his story, Paul has talked about his past as one who had said the wrong things, done the wrong things, and was the wrong person. And now he talks about his current state as one who has received mercy. And at the end of this, Paul praises God, not himself. See, Paul could have written in verse 17, to the apostle of this age, mortal, visible, the only Paul, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. But he doesn't say that at all. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In response to his story, Paul gives honor and glory to God. Why? Because Paul's story is God's story. On his own, Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, and an unfaithful sinner. But with God's help, by God's strength, Paul becomes a faithful servant, overflowing with faith and love. And like Paul, our service honors and glorifies God when it depends on his strength, not ours. When we serve God with our own strength, we will fail to serve him well. We will fail in our ministries. We may fail by never achieving our intended results. We start a ministry to reach the lost, but we see no one come to Christ. We start a ministry to to help people grow in their love and knowledge of God, but we only get people who are arrogant and bickering and nitpicky. When we rely on God for our own strength in our ministries, we may not see the results that we wanted in the first place. If we rely on God for our or ourselves for our strength in ministry, we may also see that we burn out very easily. If we rely on our own strength to serve God, we may very well find ourselves tired, exhausted, and unable to give one more day of faithful service to him. Without a continual personal relationship with God, we will wither on the vine. We will not be able to endure. We all know too many pastors, too many friends that relied on their own strength for their ministry. And eventually they couldn't deal with the criticism or the sorrow or the work anymore. They just couldn't continue. Likewise, when we minister in our strength instead of God's, we may grow bitter to others. We get frustrated that we faithfully show up, but no one else does. We give our time and energy to take care of the church building, but no one else helps. We give our time and energy to plan a Bible study for husbands and fathers, but only like five guys in the church show up. If we rely on our own strength, we may grow bitter to others for not pitching in or not showing up. And we may also seek shortcuts in the ministry. We want results. We want success. In our strength, we come up with strategies that will get us higher attendance on Sundays or events that get us more teenagers on Wednesdays. We set aside preaching the Bible to preach about relevant topics. We set aside biblical songs to sing stuff that gets on the radio. We may take shortcuts for success instead of putting in the lifetime of effort of faithfulness to God. And you know what the scariest thing about it is when we rely on our own strength instead of God's? Everything may seem to go fine. 
We may have a year or a decade or a lifetime of ministry that is built on our own strength and it seems to go perfectly fine. We get the results. We endure to the end. We're happy with other people in the church. We don't take shortcuts. But if that ministry is done out of your strength and you carry the weight of it on your shoulders, then what happens when you're gone? What happens when you pass on, when you leave the church, when you move? Falls apart. We cannot rely on our own strength to serve God and minister to people. In every way, it can lead to failure. And the scariest thing is we could end our ministries thinking we serve the Lord well, and he might just say to us, I never knew you. But when we rely on God's strength, not just for our salvation, but our daily walk with the Lord and our service to him, when we do that, we can join Paul in giving God alone the honor and glory. Because it was not from our own strength that we can brag or boast about it. It was only from Jesus Christ. It was only because the Spirit gave us the power. And so we serve and we fight with the strength of our Lord. And with all this in mind, we ought to have great humility. We, we need the strength of God to show us mercy for our sin and to help us carry on to serve him faithfully. Without him, we are unfaithful sinners. But with him, we can be faithful servants. And with this perspective, Paul then can turn in this letter to addressing the issue of false teaching in the church. Because we fight false teaching in the church with humility, knowing that before we were soldiers for the gospel, we were sinners rebelling against God. In verse 11, Paul says that he has been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Although he had fallen so short of the glory of God, he could now preach the gospel of God's glory. And if a sinner like Paul can be entrusted to proclaim that gospel, then surely Timothy can be entrusted to defend it. In verse 18, he says, This charge... And we see in verse 3, it's the charge to stop the false teaching. I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, or as other translations say, fight the good fight. He was supposed to do this relying on the strength given to him by God, and also with the weapons given to him by God. In verse 19, it says, holding faith... And a good conscience. See, false teaching must be confronted with faith and a good conscience. Faith refers to a personal faith in Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. If we are to fight the good fight against false teaching in the church, we must be genuine believers. That is, we must be true teachers who genuinely trust Jesus for their salvation. False converts cannot fight the fight against false teaching. They will either address it with wrong beliefs or with wrong actions. We also wage the war with a good conscience. This refers to how we live. We are to listen to the guiding of the Holy Spirit, avoiding sin and following Jesus faithfully. If we are going to confront false teaching, we need to know the truth 
And we have to actually live like it is true. You know, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good to know seatbelts save lives if you ever, never put one on. You have to both know the truth and live like it's true. But false teachers reject these things. In verse 19, we see this. False teachers reject faith and a good conscience. They falter in either their beliefs or their behavior. And they often falter in both. In the case of the false teachers at Ephesus that Paul is writing Timothy about, it appears that they have followed their bad consciences into immoral behavior, and then they went back and reshaped their doctrine to match their behavior. We see this happen all the time, don't we? When people fall into moral decay and justify it by twisting God's word. We need to protect our own hearts and our church from justifying sin with God's word. Because God's word does not justify sin ever. Although the false teachers have rejected faith and a good conscience, we cannot. We don't stoop to their level. We don't fight them on their terms. We fight them with the very weapons they reject. We cannot fight false teaching by fighting like false teachers. We cannot serve Christ in an unchristlike way. We cannot bring God glory by acting in a way that dishonors him. This means holding to faith and a good conscience. We do not neglect a growing personal devotional life with our Lord. We persevere in reading the Bible, in praying to God, in fasting, and in gathering with our local church what we're doing this morning. We hold to our faith. Likewise, it means we do not sin in the process of addressing false teachers. We do not forget that we are sinners in need of mercy too. Before we served God as soldiers in the battle, we were unfaithful sinners. We don't compare ourselves morally to those teachers, but only to our perfect teacher, Jesus. As we correct and discipline them, we stay above reproach. We never get satisfaction out of this work, but we do it anyway. We hold to a good conscience. And if the false teachers do not repent, they must be removed from the church and thrown into the sea of Satan, lest they shipwreck the faith for the entire church. Among those who rejected the faith and a good conscience in Ephesus were Hymenaeus and Alexander, as we see here in verse 20. Paul names them, and he says that he handed them over to Satan. This is a similar phrase Paul uses elsewhere to signify removing them from church membership. To be clear, churches should never remove someone from membership lightly. Normally, church discipline looks like a small word of correction here or there. And again, I'll say some of you have experienced that with me. And and I also mean you correcting me just as much as I'm correcting you. Occasionally, it looks like confronting someone with their sin. Less often, it looks like involving multiple church members to address that sin. And rarely, it looks like a church removing a member. We don't do this lightly, but it sometimes must be done. When we accept someone into membership, we effectively give them assurance 
that to the best of our knowledge, they are our fellow brother and sister in Christ. They are a child of God. We give them assurance, basically, that they're saved. And we would be wrong to allow them to remain a member, believing that they are in good standing with God, when we do not believe that they are. We would be wrong to treat them as a fellow brother or sister in Christ when we cannot truly say we believe they are. So we remove them from membership, taking away the assurance and blessings of it. We do this for two reasons. One, we do this to protect the church. If we do not send these false teachers out, then we allow them to bring Satan into our sanctuary. We allow them to bring in doctrine that is demonic. False teachers are not neutral. They are fighting against the church. They are fighting against God. So like good soldiers, we fight back. But we do it according to the weapons they reject. Faith and a good conscience. These false teachers, like sailors with a broken compass, lead the faith into dangerous waters. And they take the church with them. Pastors must be good soldiers and good sailors. We must know how to fight false teaching and how to navigate the dangerous waters of that teaching. We also wage this war against false teachers for their benefit. Because the aim of removing false teachers from the church is repentance. Paul says that he handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. You remember Paul's story? He was a blasphemer, but he received mercy. Having been removed from membership and no longer having the assurance or blessing that go with it, those we discipline may find themselves returning to the church in repentance. That is our hope. Reconciliation. Whether they're restored to the church, having realized they were in the wrong, or whether they have to be redeemed by Christ in the first place. I recently read an article about a man named John who told his story of being restored, a restored church member after having been removed from membership. At the end of it all, he wrote this. To this day, I don't know if I was a backslidden convert or if I was a deceived non-Christian. Either way, church discipline served to expose my hypocrisy. It forced me to deal with the claims of Christ. God used membership and exclusion to show me that life in the world without God is miserable, and my only hope is Christ. May this be the culture that we create. May it be the testimony of every false teacher that finds their way into membership in a local church. God can lead churches through faithful servants who are once unfaithful sinners. He can use them to fight false teaching. See, God can do extraordinary things through the most ordinary people. But we must not forget our call on this. Ulysses Grant was an extremely successful soldier in general, but he didn't revel in war. After the heat of battle, he often withdrew to be by himself or else walked among the dead with a heavy heart. He once said, I have never advocated war except as a means of peace. 
we ought not to enjoy the fight. We don't fight over, or we shouldn't seek to fight in the church just for the fun of it. We don't do it because we're debaters and we like arguing. We don't do it because we're hard-headed and we like the fight. We do it because we want to see a church filled with genuine believers. We do it so that our members are not led astray and so that people who have gotten into our church but we cannot have assurance of their salvation aren't led into believing they are saved when they are on a very slippery slope to hell. We fight false teaching because it's a threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we fight with heavy hearts, but also with clear conviction, seeking peace and reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, prepare for the fight by watching your life and doctrine closely. Do not neglect the gathering of the saints together. Do not neglect your time in the scripture. Do not neglect your prayers to our Lord. Do not fall into the trap of Satan and into sin. Press on. Fight the good fight in your life so you might be prepared to fight that same fight in the church of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.